Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses of Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network broadcasts from two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn, located next to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. We are Groundworks, Inc. I'm Alice Marcus-Creed. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. So today is part three of our Horticultural Heritage series, and we're going to do a walk through old New York through Dutch New York and the influence that the Dutch had on New York City and in a, and in establishing it as a city of trade. And I might add Bushwick is a Dutch name. It is. Right? It absolutely so is. So we're sitting a little we're sitting on Dutch we're sitting on Dutch property right now. <laughs> <laughs> Originally. So, so in the series, if you haven't been following along, we've been discussing the early influences of American horticulture. Prince's Nursery and Flushing Queens, Presidents Washington and Jefferson, Madison Franklin and Adams' love affair with horticulture and how plants affected the democracy and the language. So today, we have an amazing guest. This book changed my life. It's not a book about horticulture per se, but it's a book um, about the I- Dutch and how the Dutch really influenced the United States. We have Russell Shorto, author of The Island at the Center of the World by Vintage Books, which is a division of Random House, and this was published in 2004. Russell Shorto is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and author of several amazing books. The Island at the Center of the World was a New Netherland project at the New York State Library, where the archives of the Dutch colony centered on Manhattan are being translated. The book is the winner of the Washington Irving Prize for Contributions to New York History and winner of the Holland Society's Gold Medal for Literacy Excellence. Uh, Here's some quotes about the book. Shorto's book makes a convincing case that the Dutch did not merely influence the relatively open, tolerant, and multicultural city that became the U.S. They made the first and most significant contribution. That was from American History Magazine. And another really poignant um, statement is a triumph of scholarship and a rollicking narrative, an exciting drama about the roots of America's freedom. That was written by Walter Isaacson, author of Benjamin Franklin, An American Life. So welcome, Russell. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both very much for having me. So, Russell, what was the inspiration and the influence for writing this book? Um, well, it, it was very simple and mundane. I was living at the time in the East Village, and uh, um, I, I've learned about myself as a writer that I tend to kind of go look for the story at the origins, the roots of things. And I, my daughter was a toddler at the time, and the nearest open space for her to run around and play was the churchyard of St. Mark's in the Bowery. Uh-huh. And I would take her there, and she would be running around among the tombs there. Yes. And the tomb. <laughs> 
and the tomb of Peter Stuyvesant is actually in the the foundation of the church. And I, you know, like most people, I knew Stuyvesant uh, had a peg leg, and that New York was once New Amsterdam, and that the Dutch were involved in the founding. But I didn't know more than that. Right. So I started digging and got further and further, and I realized this is really a way to reorient your perspective, not just on how New York became what it did, but on, as you said in the beginning, on uh, how America got started and how that influenced uh, what America became. Yeah, it's um, it's actually fascinating. Carmen and I spend all of our time thinking about plants. And as I was, we're, we're also just kind of armchair New York City buffs. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about books and history and, yeah. and New York. Um, and when I read your book, I wa- it was such a different perspective on New York. Um, because I think most of us get our kind of British history narrative. And the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims. Plymouth colony and the, right. they think of that as the founding of America. Right. And, right. Source. and when you also think about our horticultural history and you read about Washington and you read about this love of plants and then you think you take a step back and you think more about really the Dutch influence on plants and tulip mania and sure. all that speculation that was happening. Um, and then to, to read your book, it just was like this huge aha Yes. Like, yes, I have to agree with that. I just could see when I read certain passages, Russell, I could see the characters reflected in modern day New Yorkers. It was like, yeah, the analogies were incredible. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. We're well. We're actually it's funny. You're saying that because we're right now. Um, CBS <laughs> is developing a, a dramatic series uh, around the book, and so I'm reading the scripts and things. Oh, and, and that's exactly what we're talking about. Basically, is like you know these people walking around in the 1600s on Manhattan when it was most of the island was a wilderness. Right. Have a lot of the kind of swagger and the you know the aggressiveness, and I mean it, it's it, they're like the the they are the original New Yorkers in a sense. Yes. They are. And, and, you know, it was all about the idea for finding this new land was all about speculation and what could be gleaned from it. Right. Um, And it was about the fur trade and the beavers. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the beginnings from your book? Sure. Um, It was uh, the Dutch uh, East. First of all, the Dutch made their big uh, splash, the beginning of their golden age with the founding of the Dutch East India Company, Mm -hmm. which was founded in order to uh, exploit uh, trade with the East Indies, that is to say, with Asia. Right. Um, And, you know, they were uh, cinnamon and pepper and nutmeg. uh, That's what they were transporting. They then had the notion to... uh, plant a colony in what they called the West Indies, and they founded the West India Company. And West Indies basically meant if you're in Europe and you're looking at the map, everything kind of to your left. (laughs) So, you know, the east coast of North America, the Caribbean, the coast of South America, that was all sort of the West Indies. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they, following on the heels of Henry Hudson, who was an Englishman, but who sailed on behalf of the Dutch, Mm -hmm. he charted the land from the Delaware River uh, up through New York, north of New York, just north of uh, Albany, up the Hudson River to uh, a place called that's still called Half Moon, which is where he turned his his, his ship was the Half Moon. He turned around and and uh, went back out. But that then became the colony of New Netherland, and its capital 
New Amsterdam was the southern tip of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And Henry Hudson, as Alice and I were discussing earlier today, he completely disregarded. He was the first New Yorker. Yeah, <laughs> he disregarded his employers. He was supposed to go east, right? And instead right. he went west. He just did his own thing. Yeah, well, he, he, was, he had tried a couple times to do it. They wanted a northeast route, yeah. which right. would have been up around Russia, uh-huh. which, of course, is very hazardous and very yeah. cold and icy, and you're in small wooden vessels. And he had actually tried that, yeah. and they um, wanted him to do it again. And he started out that way, and he was hemmed in by ice as before. And in mid-voyage, he basically said to his crew, we're going to try something else. And he, <laughs> and he went straight across the Atlantic and because they had this, you know, he was kind of, he was uh, on the cutting edge of, yeah. uh, uh, of uh, what, uh, knowledge about the globe. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had this theory that there was a uh, uh, strait that went, cut through, they, they thought the North American, con- they thought the world was, smaller, the globe was smaller than yeah. it is, mm-hmm. and a lot of North America, which they didn't know about, like the western half, <laughs> they assumed didn't exist, right. and they thought there must be a strait that cuts through to, so that instead of coming to, say, what's now Ohio, you'd come to China. the Sea of Japan. Right. Or, or <laughs> China. Yeah. Right. Right. So that was, that's why he was originally sailing up the Hudson River. He thought it was going to cut west, and, and there he'd be. Right. And, and then he realized that that wasn't happening, So and then he saw... New York Harbor, right? Can you right. describe, Russell, what landscape he saw when he landed in New York Harbor? Yeah, they have, I mean, the, the journal from his voyage is still extant, and it, you know, this, they describe coming into this great cathedral of a harbor and, and the cliffs, you know, the cliffs of New Jersey and these stands of oak trees, and, mm-hmm. and they talk about an abundance of blue plums, like there were plum trees in, in full flower, and... Uh, so um, and then and natives and they did some trade with them. There was violence uh, and it was up and it was a question who started it. And uh, but he then you know and he went as I said uh, about 150 or 160 miles north of Manhattan. They probably you know they went past Manhattan and they didn't go around the East River. So they probably thought it was actually part of the mainland. Um, so uh, they just went straight up the Hudson, turned around, and came back. Because, as I said, they were looking for this route west. And when he realized, when you get up past um, Kingston, mm-hmm. the river um, loses its salinity, and, you, right. and they realized, okay, this is actually a river. It's not a strait between two Con- bodies Con- of salt water. Exactly, exactly. But it was incredible. And still today, the drama of it. You know, like it, oh, the Palisades and everything. Right. Oh, like when, it's yeah. So you, uh, yeah, sure. Every time I, uh, you know, you across one of the bridges, uh, you, yeah. you, you look out, it's just, and, and you think of that. They called one of the early names for it was uh, the River of the Mountains, you know, mm-hmm. and you just see that. It just feel, you feel the majesty of it. Yeah. And Manhattan Island is like kind of just a giant pier, like a giant three-sided pier in a way, right? With, I mean, this, with this magnificent world-class harbor, right? Yeah, now. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what I loved about the book was actually all the description of the letters that went back and forth yeah. from Amsterdam and to, you know, from Manhattan to Amsterdam and, and the characters that go back and forth. And what a raucous time and what a bohemian society this this was, which is exactly what New York is. It was nothing like Plymouth Colony. No, <laughs> let's just say <laughs> it was that. Thank God. Every different place you were. 
mention the letters, um, it, I, I should note that the New Netherland Institute in um, in Albany, in the State Library in Albany, that's how I got on the story. When I was uh, in touch with them, mm-hmm. I realized that since 1974, they've been translating and publishing the archives of the colonies, mm-hmm. letters, correspondence, court cases, and all that. So that is this, it's 12,000 pages of material. Right. And that's what opens up this whole world into, you know, which was... Uh, unlike the New England colonies, it was this very diverse place, and it was diverse because the Dutch Republic, as it was called then, was kind of the melting pot of Europe. Right. Uh, there were, and so when that society formed this colony, all these different people speaking different languages and worshiping different faiths became part of it. Mm-hmm. And it was the port for Europe. Everything was coming in and out of Amsterdam because everybody else was just fighting among themselves, the re- the European countries, right? Spain, England, right? France. It was yeah. I mean, it was the uh, that was the 17th century. It was the great age of religious wars uh-huh. in Europe, and uh, and the Nether- the Dutch Republic fashioned this. I mean, they became a republic, and they be uh, in the mid and then their golden age came into being in the midst of all this turmoil, and they became these great exploiters of talent, among other things. I mean, uh, everywhere else in Europe, intolerance was actually official policy. I mean, and that just made sense to people, that in order for society to be strong, you had to be on the same page. We all had to worship the same faith and speak the same language. And the Dutch didn't have the luxury of that, and it had all long been a place where lots of different sailors and people ran there from fleeing persecution or whatever. So they tur- they turned that wisdom on its head and came up with this notion of tolerance, mm-hmm. and it's a, they made it kind of an ideal, but really it had this very practical basis to it because they realized, well, you know, we can better make money off of people if we allow them to live next to us, and and uh, then we learn the languages and we can go out and and uh, trade with them. Right, and so the story of the book is captivating because. It's the stories of all the early Peter Minuit, you know, the $24, like the right. the Native American population that was here. And, and it's the interaction and the Vanderdunks and the Cortellus and all the These streets names. that we, you know, know. Like, right. Like I was thinking when I was reading the book, Russell, that... Like you think all that you have left of the Dutch of New Amsterdam are the names... Right. right. But your right. book explains how much of our like American identity. Right. Ethos. Comes from right. the Dutch. And I love what you say in the book. I forget what chapter it's in. You say the Dutch had to look out. Mm-hmm. You know, they were a mm-hmm. small, flat country, not a lot of resources. They weren't like Spain or France or Germany. They had to look outward mm-hmm. for for opportunity. Right. And that's right. so American, right? right. Sure. I mean, sure. it's just so yep. American. It's basically two things they, that they developed and they brought to Manhattan and to the whole region. Uh, they developed this notion of free trade, which had to do with their, as you said, it's very flat, not only flat, but much of it's below sea level. And they had to create dams and dikes to reclaim land for the sea and to try to control the area so they could live in it and farm it. Mm-hmm. And that that relationship, that uh, uh, doing that created, in order to do that, they had to form these communities and they had to pull together to build 
walls, build dams and build dikes. And so that created, out of that, then they, be, they realized they can make life better for their children. Right. Uh, so that, that these uh, individuals who, were, who saw opportunity and could make money, but they were, they were based in this collective effort where they all bound together to do this collective work, this backbreaking work. So that there's this dichotomy. You have these, this society of really strong individuals who know that their individual power is due to their bowing to the collective. And that then allows them, that's what this, uh, their free trade comes out of. So that plus this notion of tolerance, those two things transplanted to New York give you this multi-ethnic, diverse society mm-hmm. and this free trading society. I mean, that's basically a recipe for New York. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And tell us about some of the different nationalities that were represented then and, right. and what they were doing, Russell, because I don't think people realize, as I didn't, who was living in early New York. Yeah, New Amsterdam, in, in 1643, there's a, a Jesuit priest who shows up, uh, and he reports 18 languages being spoken in New Amsterdam, and there were probably only about 500 people living there at the time. Wow. So, you know, you might say New York was New York even before it was New York. Uh, and they <laughs> yeah. were, you know, all Scandinavians, Swedes, Germans, uh, Dutch, a significant portion of English, uh, and then there were uh, the occasional Italian or Czech uh, people from all over Europe. Then, of course, you had Africans, both slave and free, and various, uh, all the Leni Lenape, the different um, tribes w- around the region that were very much a part of the uh, the population. Mm-hmm. And what I loved also was just because of the port of New York, there were people from Brazil, there were all those Caribbean and Central American, um, you know, uh, satellite trades people that were coming up and settling here because of the marketplace that was New York. And I, I just, in the stories of, you know, the Bacnalia that happened here. <laughs> yes, there's some so, interesting. And, and the some, lawlessness oh. and, and the lack of governance was so amazing. Yeah, because for a long while, they really just, it's true also, they were just thinking of it as a trading port. They never intended for it to be a settlement like the English were thinking of their settlements, you know, that they would, you know, lay roots, lay roots. It was just for business, right? Well, it's there are two different stories. One, what you just said is the is what the company itself thought. They saw it as, you know, we'll just put down a fort and we'll either fight with the locals or (laughs) trade with them to get the stuff we want. And then and whoever's there, they're kind of like our, you know, our company employees, workers. Yeah, right. But the people who, for whatever reasons, that group of, that multi-ethnic group of people that lived there, they began to put down roots, they began to intermarry, they formed a society, a real society. And so the story that I tell in my book is the story of the the conflict between the the company and its way of doing things Mm -hmm. and the people who lived there who then wanted you know, the full blanket of Dutch laws and so on to apply to them. They wanted to be a province of the Dutch Republic. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's the struggle. And I I focus in particular on a man named Adrian Vanderdonk, who became uh, the representative of the people fighting against the company. And what I argue is that if you can point to one person, it's him and it's his work that cemented those features, in in particular 
the, the Dutch uh, individualism and free trade and this notion of tolerance into the foundation of it so that when the English finally took over, that remained and really became part of New York. Right. Okay, we have to take a break. This is a perfect spot. When we come back, I want to talk about Vanderdonk as a farmer, and I want to talk about tobacco as the first kind of trade um, crop. Crop. So hang on the line. You're listening to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. Child of the Woods by Slow Roasters. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Today we're talking about early trade in New York City, Amsterdam's influence on early New York, with the author of The Island at the Center of the World, Russell Shorto. So let's talk about tobacco. We kind of laid the sort of framework of about the Dutch colony a little bit, um, but tobacco, tobacco was important to the Virginia colony, and traders in New Amsterdam, with their ties to the world's greatest trading part uh, power, were among the most sophisticated on earth. They, of course, traded beaver pelts. That was like the first right. thing, and other pelts as well. Um, but this trade was only the means for the initial settlement of this fine country. This is what. Um, this is what Russell Shorto says yes. in his book. In his book, he says, This trade was only the means for the initial settlement of this fine country by Europeans. Tobacco was just as important a product and one with a future. Amsterdam was the tobacco capital of Europe. Just imagine those Dutch pipes, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so it was just... Uh, it was one with, oh, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Oh, so Amsterdam was the tobacco capital of Europe with cost-cutting Dutch shipping and trading practices such as bulk buying. The Virginia tobacco farmers uh, began to rely on Manhattan as a shipping center. The world tobacco trade was in the first stage of its century-long surge. And even at this early point, the Dutch had developed a marketing savvy that Philip Morris might admire. So there were different grades of tobacco, different varieties of blends, Virginia leaf mixed with lower grade Manhattan product, along with Dutch grown varieties to sort of suit all different tastes and, and price points. And then they also added flavorings, lavender, nutmeg, rosemary, coriander, dill, even vinegar. They also focused on package design. And there were lots of satellite trades and jobs that added in this commerce. Um, in fact, there was a Peter Stuyvesant Dutch, Dutch cigarette, cigarette brand. brand. <laughs> so New York City became the sort of center of shipping right. in 1640s. That's how uh, Vanderdonk, who's this, uh, it's a name that was new to me, um, kind of described New York during that time. Right. Um, I, and I should note that the Peter Stuyvesant brand, I think, came into being in the, in the 20th century as a way for the Dutch to kind of <laughs> long after the fact try to, you know, r- r- uh, remind people of their connection to, to American tobacco. But, yeah, um, the, and it's, it's it, the, the story of New York's founding coincides with the story of Europeans' discovery of tobacco and, you know, addiction to tobacco. And they very quickly, at first they thought, well, you know, there's tobacco here, so we can just start growing it and shipping it. But they quickly learned that 
uh, Virginia tobacco was the best, and they tried very hard on Manhattan to grow tobacco, mm-hmm. but it was never as good. Uh, so then, as you say, they they realized, okay, well, we can blend it, and you know, then we can sell the blends uh, more cheaply than straight Virginia tobacco. And and the Dutch, uh, going back uh, two centuries before this, pioneered a lot of these concepts with things like the herring trade in the North Sea. They developed all kinds of ways to um, to literally to brand, they would brand it Holland herring, you know, so people would know that you know that was the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these techniques then they applied to American tobacco. And therein lies Fifth Avenue <laughs> and the <laughs> advertising firms. Right, Madison Avenue <laughs> right. began a long time right. ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about Vonderdonk. Um, yes, yes, underappreciated. Mr. Yeah. So he was also a farmer. And um, I have a book um, called The Dutch American Farm. It's an extremely academic book. Um, very, very dry. Not at all as interesting as your book, Short, uh, Russell. <laughs> but um, but it's, it's, it's very useful, you know, about uh, in describing the, um, the Dutch farm. And mm-hmm. it, it's by a gentleman named David Stephen Cohen, um, who's over at Rutgers. And he writes a lot about Vonderdonk. So I thought it was, I, you know, was having like a spasm at, at the two worlds colliding here. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm just going to read a little bit about, about Vonderdonk as a farmer. Um, Adrian Vonderdonk in 1655 cleared land that was grubbed, which means the roots were removed, and twice plowed. Summer and winter grains, rye and wheat were planted. If the land became foul, peas were sowed. Um, Garden produce, um, some of it was native to America, and some was introduced from the Netherlands. Cabbages, parsnips, carrots, beets, endive, chicory, sorrel, dill, spinach. Uh, Dutch herb gardens were developed, which contained lavender and rosemary, thyme, hyssop, sage, marjoram, onion, wormwood, laurel, and artichokes. Vanderdonk... um, also said about about pumpkins that they are generally despised <laughs> as a mean and unsubstantial article of food, but in America of such a good quality that we, the Dutch, hold them in high esteem. Squash. He says about squash, the natives have another species of this vegetable peculiar to themselves, called by our people caseyens, I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, which was a named which was a name derived from the Aborigines as the plant was not known to us before intercourse with them. (laughs) And also he describes melons that thrived in new Netherland, even on newly cleared woodland provided it was weedy. One variety that grew especially well was the citral or the water citron, which is watermelon, not native to the Netherlands, but known as a result of imported from Portugal. So here we have Amsterdam as a port, and now we have New York as a port, and the mixing of like the everyday items with the items for speculation, like tobacco. And so there's a lot of trade going on horticulturally, back and forth and we spoke last week about prince's nursery which was the kind of epicenter of this 
nursery trade back and forth, and it was America's first commercial nursery. And it was here in New York. And it was here in New York. So they were really, uh, they got started in grapes and in apples and in the small fruits, and they developed an apple called the Newtown Pippin Apple and the Esopus, E-S-O-P-U-S, um, apple. And so apples and pears were, of course, very instrumental um, to life on the Dutch farm. And I have to note that um, I'm a member of this organization. I'm, I'm on the board of this organization that's a 1699 Dutch farmhouse. Russell, do you know this, the Dutch farmhouse um, the Old Stone House in Park Slope, Brooklyn? Yeah, sure. So I'm on the board there, and the first shot of the Battle of Brooklyn was shot over a watermelon patch, patch, <laughs> which is what Vanderdonk was talking about. Right, right. Um, it's interesting. The um, you, you were talking, you were quoting from uh, Vanderdonk's writings. He, uh, the backstory to it he, is, he was kind of a Renaissance man. He um, was became this promoter, as I said, of the colony and, and, and led this fight against the West India Company. Really, he was trying to get the them get the Dutch in the Netherlands to support this colony because the Dutch were totally focused on the East Indies where they were making the money. This colony around what became New York, it was a, a confusion to the to the leaders, mm-hmm. and so he was trying to get them to take note. So he went to Europe. He made this plea while he was waiting for the government to respond. He wrote a book, a popular book, to to distribute to people not just in the Netherlands but around Europe uh, and he tried to get them interested in this new world so mm-hmm. what he was doing was he was describing the flora and fauna, he was describing you know the trees are taller, the animals are bigger, their fur is warmer yeah. um, and then he just went on right through um, uh, every kind of plant that's grown and cultivated, the wild plants the right. kinds of animals, the beavers um, and he was interesting. The many, and in fact, he did. Hundreds of people went to the harbor. He he got ships and captains, and he shipped off settlers. Right. Uh, and and then he also. Uh, you're talking about him as a farmer. He he had a uh, portion. He had an estate just north of Manhattan, and he was his title was the Yonkir, which is like uh, the the young squire. And mm. Yonkers is named after that, after his title, and. Basically, Van Cortland Park and north of there was all his land, and that's where he was trying to develop uh, these agricultural techniques that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, as you said, um, things like watermelon fascinated him because you know they basically didn't have it. And he uh, and he talks about I've got the book right here, and he talks about, uh, for example, grapevines, and he's amazed at the profusion that grapevines grow in wild in New Netherland. He says they grow on the level and open fields, in the natural forests, under the trees, on the banks of rivers, creeks, and streams, on hillsides and in the foothills of mountains. Mm -hmm. Uh, In some years, they practically all produce in abundance, and it's truly a delight and natural wonder to see such choice and lovely fruit growing rank and wild all over. So he's just, you know, has, has this kind of loving description of all of the plants and animals uh, that are in New Netherland. He's, and what he's doing, of course, is trying to convince people to come and experience it. Right. And Washington was doing the same. <laughs> General Washington was doing the same 
about, you know, as he was waxing poetic about the native trees and this is our democracy and we have to, you know, we have to, to work with the land. And, it, you and know, he promoted so here. much native. And I can imagine, I mean, coming from Europe and especially Holland, which is pretty flat and sandy soil and great mm-hmm. for growing tulip bulbs, but there's no timber. Right? I mean, I can just imagine. Timber was one of the things they shipped back. I mean, the abundant, I think in one part of the book, somebody says that there was so much timber, it was in our way. Right. Like it was just. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, they had no idea how far west it continued. Right. It was just unlimited. (laughs) uh, And they heard reports from Indians of great bodies of water, which probably were referring to the Great Lakes. Right. You know, beyond Western, beyond that, they, right. they didn't have a conception. So right. in a way, Vanderdunk, beyond being a farmer and a promoter of the colony, he was kind of our first naturalist, right? Like before Bartram, before mm-hmm. those English well, recognized the value of it. And I mean, it was it was those grapes that he was describing that princes went on to mix with the European varieties, you know, yeah. to start wine cultivation. So right. it's it's a it's just a crazy fascinating time. And that's why it's so wild that you know people know a little bit about Peter Minuet, they know Peter Stuyvesant, but we don't know about Vanderdunk. Mm-mm. You know? I right. don't, and I, he is you're absolutely right. He de- he doesn't just describe it and say, "Oh, you know, the trees are big and and there's a lot there's a lot of abundance, so come." He talks about different varieties, he talks about Indian methods of cultivating and and different kinds of manure to use and and so he's goes into you know much more detail than he would have to which right. which suggests something else this kind of uh, individual passion and he was also one who didn't follow rules he was brought over to get this Rensselaer's estate sort of under control right but he he kind of went off the rails on his own as well right like a little bit yeah, like Hudson. Was, uh, Rensselaer's Reich was a kind of uh, colony within the Dutch colony right uh, that that was all around um, what's now Albany, mm-hmm. so you know far north of Manhattan. He was sent over to become the sheriff, the Dutch word is scout. So he was the lawman <laughs> right. on that colony within the colony, right. and he kind of clashed with the people, with the, the his bosses there, and eventually realized that there was this conflict brewing on New Amsterdam, and he was a lawyer. He was the only lawyer in the colony. Mm-hmm. So they engaged him, or whether they engaged him, or he said, look, I can help. He then became the one who was writing the series of legal complaints against the West India Company and laying them before the Dutch government, all of which were basically saying, look, you have this amazing opportunity here. You have this land that is fertile beyond our reckoning and that extends forever. And you know, forget about the East Indies. Look at you have to put your attention and put your, and you have to defend this land and support the people here mm-hmm. because if you don't, we know the English are right. to the north of us in New England and the That's south right. of us in Virginia, and they're going to take over eventually. And of course, he was right, and he said it will one day rise to outstrip the home country in power. Mm-hmm. And he was absolutely right about all of that, including the fact that the English did in fact come in and take over. Yeah. He he really saw the republic as a republic. He really saw what could be, but nobody listened to him. Right? Yeah, and yeah. he wanted to and, and this colony, I mean he didn't have any 
this is the 1600s, it's not the 1700s. He's right. not sort of arguing for independence. He's no. just arguing that the Dutch make it fully a part of the Dutch, uh, right. uh, of the Dutch Republic. And think what would have happened had that happened. I mean, I always think about it, if, um, even before reading the book, I wondered if the Dutch had kept right. New Amsterdam Dutch. Sure. What yeah. would have sure. happened? What we kind, would you know? be having this conversation in Dutch. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Do you know that the D, um, the East, uh, the Dutch East India Company still exists? Did you no. know that? Yep. No. We, um, I was actually at an event um, on behalf of the Old Stone House, and Kim Meyer, the executive director, actually found a bottle of this rice wine that they make, and it's still in circulation, and it was delicious. We made an amazing cocktail out of it. Really? Wow. Yeah. And Very it still exists, and it has amazing graphics on it of the map of the world. And you know, this was <laughs> this was a this was a Spice Island product but it was right. just fabulous to be drinking the history still you know well you know the the east india company which is not directly part of the new netherlands story but the thing they transformed the, they were the largest con- company in the history of the world up to that point they mm-hmm. and yeah. they did not only traded in the east indies for spices and so on they were so good at what they did that they traded among the islands of indonesia they would they became middlemen in the pepper trade among between different Indonesian islands. Right. Oh my God! So they, right. would, they would insinuate themselves into uh, local economies like that. Right? Doesn't that sound like a New Yorker? I mean, okay, <laughs> let's let's break it down, Russell. You're going to do it my way. It sounds very Dutch, and it sounds very New York. Yeah. It's like okay, I'm going to disregard orders. I'm gonna, so it's filled with a bunch of rule breakers yeah. who want to do right. things their own way. Lawyers definitely involved. <laughs> I know a guy. I know a guy. guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have to say, as an Italian, okay, this you, there's one line that I laughed so hard because the Dutch also had pretty good relations for the most part with the natives. They were the the Native Americans well, with everybody in Europe. I mean, well, they, uh, well, I mean, in in the colony, they, the the Native Americans were were right. giving them. They were the ones bringing them the pelts, right? Right. Mm-hmm. right exactly. And then somebody decided that they were going to take revenge. You know, that they were going to start a war with the with the Native Americans, right? And I think it was because some angry guy, some angry Native American, beheaded a Dutchman. Is that correct? As a res- because yeah, uh, you're you're right that they uh, eventually, of course, we know the whole long, sad story of relations between the European yeah. immigrants and the Native Americans, but the Dutch, if I mean, you don't have to look at them as any sort of, you know, purer than anybody else. Sure. Simply for practical reasons, they knew they were there in order to trade with the Indians. Right. They also knew that the Indians outnumbered them, and the Indians knew their way around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was foolish to do anything but to try to uh, work with work them. With now. Them. Yeah. And then one of the, the director of the colony before Stuyvesant, whose name was Willem Kieft, decided after a series of events like what you were talking about, decided to try to exterminate the Indians around New Amsterdam. And this that led to an uprising among his own people who foresaw a disaster in that. And that's when Vanderdonk really becomes the leader of them, the leader of kind of an opposition party. Right. And okay. he was warned. This guy, Kieft, was warned. And this is this is a line that I love, Russell, being Italian. He said, he warned Kieft, these savages re- resemble the Italians, De Vries warned, being very revengeful. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right. I am all, I'm also Italian uh, by background. Oh, so, yeah, my so, God. When I read that, Russell, I was like, and there was the mob. <laughs> you know? right, like, right. Everything was right. in place 400 years ago. <laughs> Nothing has really changed. You know? Tony exactly. Soprano. <laughs> I just loved it. I was like, okay, we had this rep like for a really long time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And just in general, when you're doing history, that's kind of, you're always going back and forth from, I can't believe how different things were to, I can't believe things are exactly the same. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It's like a mix of the two. That's what the past is. Well, when you watch the, you know, the uh, presidential debates, right? right. I was like, okay, My God. so who would Trump be <laughs> in Dutch New York? I think, right. he, I think he would be keefed. That's another. He would try to tax beer and pelts, and you don't do that. And build a wall. And build a wall, right. <laughs> and you know what's sad about keefed? When, we when I was reading about him, why did his people get pissed? He never left the fort. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. He, yeah, was yeah. he started was a, a war right. and he never left the fort. Yep. Right. That's not cool. Nope. No. You know? That's not, that's not a real military leader. No. <laughs> no. Well, Russell, your book really opened my eyes yeah. to um, a total different vision of New York. And and I I also like in the book where you talk about, you know, who is teaching you know who's doing the writing yes. right yeah. um, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I think it's so important that this perspective get out there and um, you know I'm, I'm very excited about what you were mentioning earlier that it's going to be a, a movie a PBS series yeah, yeah. that's exciting Great. when do you think that's going to happen it's a, supposedly they're, they're aiming for spring of 2017. So, oh, well, that's exciting! Is it going to be sort of like historical reenactment where they have like <laughs> people in you know costumes, sort of? It's going to be a dramatic series, not a not a. Uh, they they will probably do a documentary to go along with it. Oh, really, it'll be a multi-part uh, drama. Okay. Oh, that's fantastic! Good. Yeah, I'm super excited. Well, Russell, yeah, are the great team behind it. Uh, Scott Free, Ridley Scott's company, is uh, the production company. So terrific. It's, uh, and I'm, I've just read the third draft of the pilot script, so it's it's moving along. Russell, do you get up to? You're down in uh, Maryland now, right? Yeah, I moved. To, I lived in Amsterdam for a long time, and then I went from New York to Amsterdam, and now I live in Maryland, in the mountains of Western Maryland. Oh, it's beautiful down there. So you really are still in New Am New Netherlands, like really? I'm not in New Netherland now. This no. is not where oh, I am. It's way okay. kind of in the Panhandle where it sticks out. And in fact, I would love to have, <laughs> invite you guys over sometime because we bought a house. We've got this nice little yard and back, but I've got this long, what should be a uh, flower bed. And I'm trying to figure out what to put there. So well, we have to do something some, historical some come, for come you. To you for advice. Yeah, oh, we'd love to. We would love to we talk could to do you about something that. historical. Well, historically uh, Russell, I'd, I'd also like to extend the invitation for you next time you're in New York. Please come visit us at the Old Stone yes. House. Oh, I'll um, do that. Yeah, I'm in New York every every month or two. So, please yeah. let me know, and we would love to show you what we're doing at the Old Stone House um, because we we teach Dutch history. So it yeah. would be lovely for you to uh, to come and, and chat. And I'd in love a hands-on way, sure. No, yeah. I love that. And okay. I also want right. to mention there's one particular scholar um, that you relied on who's translating these yes, documents. Please, uh, Russell, if you wouldn't mind right. mentioning him and and what in, you know why he's important and what he's doing. Yeah, I talked uh, uh, earlier, I brought up the New Netherland Institute in Albany, yes. and the uh -huh. man who's the head of it is Charles Goering. Uh -huh. And he, since 1974, has been translating and publishing 
the uh, archive of the colony of New Netherland, and he they did it. They formed a little um, nonprofit initially, and every year they got a little bit of funding, and then uh, the state of New York got behind them, and then. After my book came out, I think the Dutch government got interested, so they get funding from them. So it's become more of a ongoing thing. So in uh, New Netherland Institute, you can find them online. It's easy to sign up and become a member. Uh, there's newsletters, lots of, and there are regular um, uh, regular seminars and meetings. So it's a great organization. And wasn't that some? Wasn't it Rockefeller money that? that they got started with? Rockefeller was governor at the time. Okay. So Rockefeller okay, originally gave them the initial that's uh, funding. What, yeah. Yeah, that's and isn't he of Dutch heritage? Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah, I yes. don't know if there was a direct connection or not, but yeah, it didn't hurt. No. And also it bears noting, and correct me if I'm wrong, Russell, the, these papers survived, you know, 400 years, right? right? And fires and all kinds of things. But all the documents in Holland, most of them were lost, Right. Right. The uh, most the, most of the documents of the of the West India Company itself are gone. Were trashed in the 1700s. Yeah. Um, but it, it, one of the things I do is kind of a subplot in my book is follow the documents and the history of the documents from the time of the English taking over and kind of treating. You know, they kept them, but they just sort of put them in the corner. You right. Know? And then uh, during the American Revolution. They spent time on a ship in the harbor. They probably went to the Tower of London for a while, and then they came back. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so think there's, about there's, it. There's, there's a big fire around. in 1911 in the state uh, library. So some of them are burned around the edges, but the irony being that they were housed on the bottom shelves, and the English records were above them. And because of their low stature, when the library burnt, the English records crashed down on top of them and kind of cocooned them. So the Dutch <laughs> records survived because of their oh, lowly status. I love that. That's a great, that's a perfect ending, It's Russell. a perfect <laughs> metaphor, too. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We hope to meet you in person someday. And thank you for this amazing work. Thank you both very much. It was yeah, fun. Really great story. Thank you. You've been okay. listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. You can follow us. We're going to post some more photos and information about the Dutch in New York. And next week, yes. we're going across the country yes. with Lewis and Clark. Yes. So and stay tuned. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. You know where to find us. Give us a shout out. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. We'd love to hear from you. Stay in touch. Thanks for listening. Happy gardening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.